From Stanford University and KZSU, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. When my sister was pregnant with my niece, I told her that if the baby was ugly, I wouldn't tell her until she turned cute. But I also wouldn't lie and say she was cute if she wasn't. So when my niece was born, she was not exactly the Gerber baby, so for an entire year I didn't make a single comment on her appearance. Finally, at about 12 months, I told my sister, you know, your daughter is really cute now, but for a while there? We often have to limit our speech, pull accepted phrases out of a box. We have to watch what we say to avoid offending others, or to avoid divulging too much personal information about ourselves. If a loved one asks us how they look, really there's only one answer. Great. Or fantastic or, or beautiful. Okay, so maybe there's more than one answer, but they're all synonyms. Needless to say, when I didn't use the scripted phrases, things were a little awkward between me and my sister. I didn't want to upset her, but I also didn't want to use the standard mantras that everyone says but doesn't really believe. From KZSU Stanford, this is the Stanford Storytelling Project. I'm your host, Micah Craddy. Each week we bring you stories of all kinds from the Stanford community that address a certain question or topic. This week on the program, Speak Freely. Stories about how the accepted language may not be the best way to communicate. About how sometimes we have to find a completely new way of talking. Today's show is in two parts. First, a piece about how maybe English isn't the best language for the whole world and maybe a totally artificial, constructed language, Esperanto, is. Second, a short story about a woman who finds the standardized language of mental health counseling just does not suffice. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project. Stay with us. Across time, different languages have been the international standard, known as the lingua franca. During the Roman Empire, Koine Greek and Latin became the standard. In the 16th and 17th centuries, Spanish became the language of diplomacy, followed by French until English took over. This makes us English speakers quite happy, but in our first piece, Ben Savage, David Heyman, and Nate Solon look at why English might not be the best language for the job, and maybe a made-up language from Poland called Esperanto is. A few months ago, I was standing in line at a McDonald's in Beijing. McDonald's in Beijing looks pretty much the same as McDonald's in America, except most of the people are Chinese and, well, the menu's not in English. I can't read Chinese, so all I had to go on were pictures of burgers and McNuggets, so I began to order very hesitantly. One number four, a Diet Coke, and an apple pie. The cashier asked me with choppy English if I cared to supersize. Sure, I said, supersize me. As I waited for my food, I had a few minutes to reflect on how convenient it was that my language and my Big Mac had followed me to Beijing. I felt secure in the sense that I could travel to any corner of the world without giving up my God-given right to supersize. But then my food came. Four cheeseburgers, four fries and four Cokes, all supersized. Maybe I should have complained, but I wouldn't have known what to say. I was going to need a lot of ketchup. Problems with English as an international language go far beyond fast food mix-ups. English is one of the toughest languages in the world for non-native speakers to crack. It's filled with strange rules and exceptions that can remain hard to grasp even after years of study. If we were to choose an international language just based on its own merits, 
English would be close to last in the running. But since the world's superpower speaks English, it's become the de facto language of choice. As a student at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, I have the opportunity to interact with students from all over the world. I interviewed some of my foreign friends about their experiences learning English. My friend Lisa grew up in Sweden and found learning English no small feat. It was really hard to learn English. Um, one could say it was very tough to learn English just with that word, tough. Like, where did that F sound come from, if you look at the spelling? The spelling is definitely really hard, and coming from a Scandinavian language where pronounce everything that you read, it was very hard to get over. I had seen posters around campus advertising meetings for an Esperanto club. Esperanto, the international language, they said. I was more than ready to check out alternatives to English, but not quite ready to venture into a meeting for a group that I knew nothing about. I googled Esperanto and came up with, among other things, a movie. Incubus. Incubus is the only full-length feature ever made entirely in Esperanto. It seemed like a nice, easy way to find out what this language was all about, so I went ahead and rented it. It's kind of a strange movie. Incubus stars William Shatner as a virtuous man who is seduced by a sex-crazed demon. It is Iris, Kenuestu Kruni. The dravus tremal mutis iniai animoi neestes unuigitai. That's Shatner at a particularly wrought moment. The subtitle reads, I want your body, and I want to give you mine, but bodies mean very little unless we also give our souls to love. Needless to say, Incubus wasn't the best movie I've ever seen. I was about to dismiss this Esperanto, but something seemed fishy. If all there was to this language was just this corny ranting of a young Captain Kirk, then why would anyone promote it as an international language? The next time I was at the library, I dug out a couple of books on Esperanto and found out the real story. Here's what I learned. Esperanto derives from a book published in 1887 by Ludwig Zamenhof. As a boy, Zamenhof witnessed ethnic struggles between Poles, Russians, and Jews in his native town of Bialystok, then a part of the Russian Empire. He thought that if the different groups could at least understand one another, they might all get along a little better. Zamenhof, an avid linguist, concocted Esperanto using his knowledge of Russian, Yiddish, Polish, German, Latin, English, and other languages. He designed it to be simple and easy to learn. Now that sounded a lot more like an international language. I did a little more research on Incubus, and found out it wasn't even made by Esperantists. In fact, much of the pronunciation, including Shatner's, was incorrect. As a first impression of Esperanto, Incubus could hardly be more misleading. Confident now that I wasn't entering the midst of a bunch of demon-worshipping crackpots, I ventured into the weekly meeting of the Stanford Esperanto Society in a little room at Stanford's International Center. My first sight of the Esperanto Society brought back some of my fears. The members of the Society could be visitors to a Star Trek convention. One man, with a ponytail, was licking the pulp from the cap of his Adwala juice drink. An older woman wore a red velour jacket, and under it, a t-shirt that said in big letters, Keep Santa Cruz Weird. Her name was Julie. She was the president of the San Francisco Esperanto Regional Organization. I asked her what attracted her to Esperanto, and got a surprisingly reasonable answer. Well, I was, uh... Visiting a relative in Florida and happened to read their copy of the Wall Street Journal, which I don't normally read, and there on the front page in April of 1994 
was an article about Esperanto, which I had heard about just as a word, but really had no idea what it was all about. And I really liked what I read, uh, the, the purpose being to have an international second language that would be neutral, that everybody could easily learn and then use wherever they went in the world. And I thought, wow, that is so nifty. A nifty idea, sure. But is it practical? Julie explained how Esperanto actually makes economic sense for international organizations like the European Union. Because as it stands, they have a huge budget just for translating materials from one of the 15 or 20 different native languages into all of the others. And if it was possible to go from, say, Greek to Esperanto and then from Esperanto to Polish, then you wouldn't have to have somebody who could speak both Polish and Greek easily. That did make sense. But was Esperanto really as easy as everyone said it was? I asked Julie to tell me more of the details. Remember how Lisa mentioned tough? In Esperanto, the word is malfacilia, spelled phonetically, like every other word in the language. That's not all she told me. All the nouns end with O. So if you hear a word that ends with O, you know it's a noun. All the adjectives end with A. All the plurals end with a letter which looks like a J, but which is pronounced like a Y. So, for example, tablo, table, tabloi, tables. Granda tablo, big table. Grandai tabloi, big tables. On my way out the door, I asked Julie if she'd seen Incubus. I have not ever seen the whole of it. I have seen parts of it. And it was an interesting experiment, I would say. I wouldn't call it a great film. Julie made a strong case for Esperanto. But B. Sanford, a Stanford student studying language warned me against embracing a language that didn't have a rich cultural background behind it. I mean, as a linguist, I feel that language is very important to representing a culture, and I, I think the idea of having having a language, you know, where people of different cultures would all have to learn it, maybe it works as a way of cross-cultural communication, but I don't think that it would really be very representative of any specific culture, and so because of that, I feel that Esperanto minimizes, you know, cultural diversity. I decided to see what the Esperantists had to say about that. Julie sent me to Joel Brzozowski, the director of the Esperanto League of North America. So I drove over to the League's headquarters in Berkeley, California. At first, I wasn't impressed. His office was just a corner of a little building in a run-down part of town. But I found Joel to be a truly sincere and informed guy. Joel has traveled widely in Europe using both English and Esperanto. He says he found Esperanto much better for accessing cultural diversity than English. With English, something was missing from his travels. When I finished, I felt a, a very definite lack, and that lack was human contact. I met very few people who actually lived in the places I was visiting. I met in the sense of really being able to sit down and talk with them and, and uh, make friends with them and understand how they're thinking. And so that's what convinced me to, to go traveling again and do it differently. Because English is so hard to learn, most non-native speakers don't feel comfortable using it. They're less likely to express their personal thoughts because they're afraid they'll say them wrong. The very fact that they have to speak English in their own country is already evidence that they're in a culturally disadvantaged position. In fact, English is really good for one thing. When I travel with English, I find that most of the people that speak to me in English um, are not interested in me or in my culture or, or really in making friends with me. Most of them are interested in money. But Esperanto as a universal second language, puts everyone on an even footing. With Esperanto, uh, it's quite seldom that, that you run into people who, who speak to you in Esperanto whose primary purpose is making money. 
but most of the time they're interested in making friends and and, and it's a it's a definitely a a different feeling and a different uh, result not only does esperanto give travelers a better shot at appreciating native cultures esperantists joel says have built their own culture a culture based on warmth openness and friendship a great many of them are genuinely interested in other cultures and people of other cultures and in making friends so in general if you run into someone who speaks esperanto there's a very good chance that that person will be very friendly and and want to to be your friend It sounded like Esperanto worked great for Joel, but the Esperanto Society posters called it the international language. I wasn't sure it was really that. While I was in Joel's office, Don Harrow, author of the Esperanto book and consultant for the Esperanto League of North America, happened to drop by. I asked him how Esperanto fulfills the ideals of communication and understanding that the phrase international language brings to mind. What it can serve to do is give individuals peaceful um, relationships with individuals in other countries, which is fairly important. When you decide decides to go to war with another country, the first thing you have to do is demonize the people who live there. Basically, an individual who knows somebody in the place in question is less likely to see those people as demons just because somebody in Washington wants to go to war with them, for whatever reason. He went on to give me a personal example. Late summer of 1964, the Tonkin Gulf incident was reported to have occurred, and Lyndon Johnson ordered the bombing of Haiphong in North Vietnam. Everybody around me had two opinions on the matter. First of all, uh, let's kick some gook ass. The other one was, we shouldn't be bombing those people. Well, I'm not particularly interested in them. I had a slightly different thought. I was thinking of a guy I knew who went to the University of Hanoi, an Esperantist with whom I was corresponding. And I, the first thing I thought of was his father and his, his two sisters who lived in Haiphong. Had they gotten hit by our bombs? So when it has a personal meaning to you, you tend to think about things a little differently than when it doesn't. Esperanto's knack for connecting people of different cultures makes it the enemy of those who would keep them apart. Dictators, for example. Don has a story about that, too. I had a friend there in London. His name was Nikolai Richkov. He was from Russia originally. Uh, he spent 18 years in Siberia because he spoke Esperanto. On one spring night in 1938, the KGB arrested every single speaker of Esperanto that they could find. They shot 3,000 of them. Most of the rest were shipped off to help improve Russia's foreign currency status by mining gold and cutting timber to sell abroad in places where you couldn't hire people to work. I just couldn't believe that Stalin would bother to deal with a handful of language nuts. So I checked out Don's story. I found that the Soviets considered Esperanto to be bourgeois internationalism and cosmopolitanism. Stalin himself called it the language of spies. Not all the specifics are fully known, but there are many personal accounts of Esperantists suffering at the hands of the Soviets. Nikolai's story was not unique. Stalin was not the only fascist who hated Esperanto. Hitler also made personal statements about Esperanto and Mein Kampf. He writes, As long as the Jew is not master of other peoples... He must, for better or worse, speak their languages. Yet, as soon as the others have become his servants, then all should learn a universal language, Esperanto, for instance, so that by these means the Jew can rule more easily. But surely that sort of oppression is far removed from our enlightened West. However, Don's friend Nikolai found Britain little more tolerant of Esperanto than Stalin's Russia. He eventually defected to the West. He broadcast for the BBC in Russian to Eastern Europe. And 
One fine day, he had a brilliant idea. He would broadcast in Esperanto five minutes a week. But some fool in Eastern Europe sent a congratulatory letter to the foreign minister, Dennis Healy. It said, congratulations on your initiative in using Esperanto, the international language, for broadcasting news to our part of the world. And the story is that Healy hit the ceiling. Esperanto, the international language, he screamed. English is the international language. And he telephoned the BBC and he said, you will cease this at once. And that was the end of it. What did the British foreign minister have against Esperanto? Don has a theory. As long as English plays an important role in the world, the United States and Great Britain are going to be the chief sources of literature, of information, and this is very important. Now just suppose that Esperanto suddenly, <clears throat> let's say as many people, 10% of the world's population, spoke Esperanto as now speaks English. Imagine what a catastrophe that would be for certain countries. Of course, in most cases, what keeps Esperanto down is indifference, not oppression. As long as native English speakers can use their own language whenever and wherever they go, there's little incentive to learn something new. But English hasn't always been the international language. Latin, French, Spanish, they've all had their turn. It seems likely that someday a language like Chinese might challenge English for supremacy. Maybe then, when faced with the daunting task of memorizing countless characters and tones, people will give Esperanto a shot. And I think at that point Esperanto will at least get a little boost. It is relatively easy to learn compared with, let's say, English or Chinese. You can reach a point at which you can actually use the language much sooner. Is Esperanto more than some kind of novelty, some kind of quaint diversion? In coming years, international communication is going to change a lot. Given the choice, wouldn't you want a language that's easy to learn? One that will allow you to exchange ideas with people around the world, or just order a Big Mac in Beijing? I think Esperanto is the international language of choice. In fact, I decided to learn a little bit myself. So until next time, Geese Revito. Ben Savage, David Heyman, and Nate, Nate Salon are recent Stanford graduates. We've all been there. A friend or family member is having a tough time and comes to you for support. After you've maxed out on your quota of, uh-huh, uh-huh, and oh, wow, and it comes time for you to actually say something, you realize you got nothing. You wonder, will they punch me if I say, I understand? This, you might think, is a job for a professional. Someone who has the right words, the right script for any situation. Today's second piece, short fiction by Suzanne Rebecca, tells the story of one of these people, of someone who works with the right words. Someone has spiked their meds with poison and hijacked their dreams. Sleep eludes them. They are haunted by long-lost bathroom graffiti. They see shadows shaped like the continent of Africa. They have no one to talk to, and they crave string cheese, and you have to get that fucker on the phone, they say. This is a job for a professional. This is what the fucker is paid for. And when you explain that you can't do that, that you can only page a caseworker if it's life or death, they say, okay, I'm going to kill myself. Then you page the caseworker. Time after time, you walk right into it. Charlie Brown with the football.
It happens so often that the caseworkers complain. Any altruistic inclination they ever had has been strangled by red tape and buried under multicolored forms and triplicate. They don't care that you're an intern. You have been exposed as a bastion of incompetence, easily undone by the vagaries of the insane, their needs and their wiles. The caseworkers hate you, and you cannot blame them, especially after the 700-pound man. Which, incidentally, is not your fault. It is the fault of your supervisor, Tyler, and his vain attempts to mentor you in the finer points of helpline etiquette. It is the fault of Tyler wending in and out of the rows of phone cubicles with the compact wariness of a fleshy, tubular fish, tensely expectant of denunciation as always, coming up to you and saying, you can't give in to them, during a rare lull in the insane population siege. It is the fault of Tyler draping one arm over the wall of your cubicle with his other hand on his hip, his hair sharply sculpted and smelling of product, and his fingers drumming the pebbled gray cubicle wall inches above a yellowing postcard claiming that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% what you do with what happens to you. It is the fault of Tyler saying, the caseworkers are on call 24-7. They need relief. Then he says, the cardinal rule is CYA, remember? This stands for cover your ass, a dictum that caused homophobic snickers during training. Your training session notes contained phrases like mirroring is essential and no advice. When your phone shrills, Tyler gives the top of the cubicle two rapid-fire taps and motions for you to pick up. I'll be on the extension, he whispers. You pick up. Hello, Keystone Mental Health Helpline, in the neutral and non-stigmatizing tone you have practiced. Hello, the caller says. At first you think he must have dialed the wrong number, because his voice is weighted with a burdensome mindfulness that is not at all insane. He sounds like someone calling to complain regretfully and evenly about shoddy service. He is silent for a long moment, and you blurt out, What can I do for you? The caller says, I don't know. Nothing, I guess. I guess I just wanted to talk to someone. You say, what would you like to talk about? I weigh 700 pounds, the man says. He clears his throat, and instantly you visualize him hunched at a kitchen table with a chicken leg in his hand, even though he doesn't sound like he's eating. In the kitchen where you place him, all the lights are off. You ask him how he feels. He says he can barely move. He is sick of living with his mother. He is sick of not having a job. He is lonely. He is afraid he is going to die soon. He feels sorry for his heart. Is that weird, he says, that I feel sorry for my own heart? Like it's an animal trying to pull a combine. It's too small for what it has to do. His voice trails. You say, have you seen a doctor? You hear an urgent rustling from Tyler's vicinity. And in a few moments, a post-it is waving frantically above his cubicle wall, emblazoned with the word judgmental in black sharpie. The 700-pound man says, I hate doctors, they judge me. Tyler's post-it dances mockingly across the aisle. You ask the man if he ever takes warm baths. He is silent. Then he says, I can't fit in the tub, I wash with a handheld nozzle thing. You say, what about a nice walk? Are you making fun of me, he says. His voice is sodden with resignation. I can't move very far. Then something hits you in the head. It turns out to be a paper airplane lobbed by Tyler and fashioned from a training handout entitled It Sounds Like You're Feeling, dot, 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 and listing dozens of adjectives depicting the full gamut of human emotions. They are listed alphabetically from anxious to wretched. Some of them aren't lone words but phrases, states of being, like worn down and all worked up. You hear the caller's belabored breathing and are seized with an irrational certainty that he will die of massive heart failure if you don't say something. So you blurt out, it sounds like you're feeling... You feverishly scan the list, but you cannot find a word to adequately fill in this blank. You can't bring yourself to say any of them. Not disempowered, not scared, not restless, not hopeful. Nothing fits. And you can feel the 700-pound man on the other side of this silence, breathing in the dark, lowering his fist with its imaginary food, waiting to be described. Are you there, he says. Um, you say, rustling the sheet, just a minute. It sounds like, and you stop, because you couldn't possibly sound more like you're reading from a piece of paper if you tried. Oh my God, the man says, disgust and hurt stiffening his voice. Are you reading from something? Then the line goes dead. Tyler's cube fairly shakes with consternation, 
and that is what does it, no matter how vociferously you argue that the 700-pound caller was not an insane person, had no caseworker, that he was an unknown entity, a rogue element, one of the rare breed of callers who found the hotline through the yellow pages or a bus advertisement, and not the usual social service network and therefore could not be dealt with in the same fashion as the standard helpline clientele, Tyler and the co-director, Kara, are adamant. You are not psychologically equipped to deal with the chronically impaired. They frame it as a learning experience. There are so many mental health professionals on this campus, Tyler says, and they have all mastered the art of empathic listening. All you have to do is talk and observe how they respond. Let them model it for you. Kara adds, healers need healing too, the world doesn't need another social worker who hasn't dealt with her own issues. Which is why, on a sleety Saturday in February, you rise at 7 a.m., drink your tea, vacuum your apartment, and board the bus to the university's counseling center. Would you prefer to talk to a male or female counselor, asked the middle-aged receptionist. She's wearing a novelty sweater spattered with bears and hearts. You say you don't care. She hands you a sheet of forms to fill out, and you leave blank all inquiries regarding sex, interpersonal relationships, and the ordeals and rites of passage of your formative years. You don't want anything going on your record. Then the receptionist says, here's your counselor, dear. A large fluffy dog, the color of autumnal leaves, enters the room. It pauses and wags its tail. Then you notice that it is attached to a tall, wiry-haired man who is following the dog toward you, taking small, deliberate steps, like a man afraid to break through ice, and smiling in your general direction with a tentative, adjustable aim of the blind. Hello, the man says. His head is serenely immobile. This here is Monty, and I'm Colin. He comes to a halt about two feet off your right side and extends his palm straight in front of him at a 40-degree angle from your torso. And at first you think he is making some sort of faith-healing gesture like a televangelist. Then you realize that he is trying to shake your hand and is missing his target. You reposition yourself until his hand brushes yours. He seizes it. It occurs to you that interacting with the blind is akin to perpetually letting a child win, a series of soft lobs, no strategic fainting, all energies concentrated into making your body a stationary, stolid bullseye. You have never spoken to a blind person before. The dog puts its head in its paws. Why don't we head back to my office, the blind man says. You have heard that blind people's remaining senses are supernaturally heightened, and you wonder if he can tell there's something wrong with you by registering the whorls of your palm, the texture of your skin, if he is finding evidence of congenital defects in the invisible emanations from your pores, signs of incapacity that will go on your record, and you fear that he is going to hold your hand all the way down the hall to his office like a lover, but he lets go. The dog leads the way into a small windowless room with beige walls. You distribute your limbs on a steel-armed blue leatherette club chair that appears to have been salvaged from an airport. Colin carefully lowers himself into an identical seat across from you. The dog flops down with a sound like someone uncorked it. Now, Colin says. He is still smiling, but his eyes are hidden behind dark glasses in which you can see yourself miniaturized and doubled, balled tightly in the chair. Before we talk about why you came in today, I suggest doing a relaxing breathing exercise for a couple minutes just to put you at ease, because you seem very anxious and upset. Do you want to give it a try? Okay, you say. You stare at the grids of Glen plaid on Colin's shirt, the silvery cap of his hair, and his careful, stout fingers as he puts his staff down, and leads you in a series of deep breaths. But you disobey his command to close your eyes. You absorb visual stimuli with impunity, cataloging madly. I see that and that and that. Will you swallow air in slow gulps? You wonder if his eyes are actually closed behind his glasses. After a few moments, Colin laughs. Listen, he says softly. Monty's doing it, too. Indeed, the fluffy dog is breathing with the same measured rhythm as her master. You laugh, too. Then you feel like you want to cry. You are seized by a clinging, insistent hunch that your sudden teariness is entirely due to the fact that you're in a room with a dog and a blind person. Because it's unexpected, you tell yourself, the double vulnerability of them, their twin soft mildness, how you can't stop wondering what they'd do if the dog got cataracts. Would another smaller creature be assigned to it, something with excellent eyesight, a trained raptor maybe, that would lead the way with the dog behind it and Colin behind the dog, the caravan growing and growing as they all aged and, t and deteriorated, on and on like a series of rust and nesting dolls. Your thoughts are making no sense. Then Colin asks why you came in. You say you're having trouble handling the calls at your internship. You're having trouble sticking to the script, is how you put it. Colin says, 
Why don't you give me some context here? How did you get into social work? He folds his hands. His voice, so gently inquisitive, has managed to leech the question of all idle curiosity and righteous expectation of an answer, but he doesn't sound disinterested either. You wonder how he does that. You say, I want to help people. This is what you always say. Colin says, well, you can't give help without getting help. It's the natural order of things. He then asks you to ponder how the people on the helpline are helping you. You try to humor him. You say that the helpline callers at least make you feel you're not that messed up. That as lonely as you sometimes get, at least you're not out of your mind. Even in your darkest hours, you don't get desperate enough to call a complete stranger and unleash the thorny devil of your id, expose your most shameful recesses, only to be told to take a bath. He says, what do you do then in your darkest hours? You pause, you read, you tell him, you draw, you call your mom, you try to focus on the positive. For a while, Colin says nothing. He does not advise you to take a bath. He does not tell you how you are feeling. You and Colin and Monty sit in silence in this room with its institutional sandstone carpet, and you wonder if Colin is asleep behind his dark glasses. Despite the darth of empathic listening taking place, you begin to feel physically pacified by the sheer monochromatic weight of his non-response. Then Colin gets up and stretches out his hand. You are afraid he is going to try and feel your face, like blind characters on TV are always doing. But he simply coaxes your hand from your lap and holds it with an air of neutrally solicitous consideration. Like a fragile item he is thinking of buying and is careful not to break. He says, I hope we can continue to work together. He uses your name. It is not, as Tyler would say, a cathartic disclosure. On the way out the door, your glance snags on Monty staring up from her place at the rug. Her black eyes are brimming with confusion, guarded hope, and what you can only identify as profound canine concern, the concern of a companion animal trained to not only sniff out one's weakness, but to worry about it. There are secular construction paper hearts on Keystone's windows, hearts without thorns or bleeding gashes, hearts that are not aflame. A tall male intern with a thatch of wild dark hair has begun to daily diagnose your mental state. You look relaxed today, he'll say, or you seem well rested this morning. And then stare at you with a closed-lipsed smile that seems to slide sideways off his face. At first you think he is practicing his helpline banter, but he says these things to no one else. At training sessions, he slouches low in his chair and stares up at Tyler with his mouth open and his small brown eyes insolently vacant. On the phone with the insane, he speaks from an insulated trough far back in his throat, consonants calloused, vowels cocooned, mummifying his voice so thoroughly that you cannot tell if he is very kind or very cruel. You bump up vocally against him and feel the shock of your words absorbed and muted, and it makes you want to raise your voice, ram the big cloddy sandbag of his personality until it swings back at you, suddenly lethal. After a grueling call rife with helpline speak, the tall young man habitually leans over your cubicle and hisses something along the lines of, It sounds like you're feeling f***ing whacked out of your mind. Then he will pick up the ringing phone and recommend a bath, a walk, a favorite TV show, and his husky, blunted diction. On Valentine's Day, you get a call from a man who says, Yeah, is this the helpline? Yes, you say. Well, good, he says, because I need some help. He sounds like a slightly insane Barry White. With what, you say? The caller says, I need a massage. I got a kink in my neck, baby. That is inappropriate, you say. This helpline is not for your own personal titillation, but a hot bath may alleviate your muscle tension. You disconnect. Tyler gives you a thumbs up. But when you relate this anecdote to the wild-haired young man, he erupts into a round of laughter like a weapon detonating. It sounds like you're feeling pervy, he snorts, pretending to consult the worksheet, and leans over to knead your collarbone with surprising force. You brace yourself and let him. Then he says, you look happy today. He strides away. Later that week, you tell Colin that you don't understand why the tall young man keeps saying these things to you. Are you unwittingly emitting some sort of contented essence? And if so, what opening does it come from, and how can you seal it? Is that really the issue, Colin says? He is terrible at this. He is not mirroring. He is not empathizing. He is posing open-ended and loaded questions that Tyler has explicitly forbidden. You are to wean them off the line with a minimum of confessional discourse. 
Is what the issue, you say, that I can't tell what people are feeling or even what I'm feeling? Isn't that the whole issue? Isn't that the whole reason I'm here? You have never been this rude to anyone before. What if, you demand of Colin, as the twin lagoons of his lenses regard you with limpid impassivity, the insanity you detect over the phone hides a deep and inarguable logic? What if you are mirroring the wrong emotions, and therefore not mirroring at all? What if you are reflecting caller's moods back at them through a funhouse mirror, declaring it sounds like you're miserable when in fact they are capering, swooning with joy? When you were a philosophy major for two months, you pondered this. The subjectivity of all things, the tail-chasing, mad-hatter gibberish of theory, and it made you dizzy and peaked. Colin says, maybe this man is interested in you, and he just doesn't know what to say to you. No, you respond, nobody is interested in me. You pick two loose threads off Colin's rug. Now he'll ask about sex. You knew this would happen sooner or later. Colin says, how can you know that for sure? How would it feel to you if he was interested? It doesn't matter, you say, because that is not the case. He sits there. He is waiting, you can tell, for you to crack. A blind man with a dog who is beginning to resemble him is asking you to justify your highly dysfunctional attitude toward your own romantic viability, and you will not do it. You will not trot out the stock villains. You will not rehash the smug triteness of it all because it's been done, it's old. Even the nightmares have the stale odor of a textbook. If you knew Braille, maybe you could tell him, punch in the violet, stabbing Sanskrit, let him trace it with his fingers as though feeling his way through a maze. If he learned it first with his body, there would be a time lag in which his brain processed the bulky translation, and you could make your escape with ease and grace. What do you see, you blurt out. Colin turns the mirrored black ovals of his glasses in your direction. Pardon, he says. I mean, you say, is it all black, like shoe polish black? Or do you see the outlines of things in shadow or lights? For a moment, he is silent. His mouth opens and closes. You guess at what's going on in his mind, ethical wrestling, pedagogical ghosts at war with all that is spontaneously human. You know he wants to respond. You know your question sounds not idly curious, but taut, an outthrust, naked ligament. His glasses are pointed straight ahead, and the black portholes look strangely visionary, hyper-intelligent, Martian-like. He licks his lips. That's not what we're here to talk about, he says firmly. Monty stirs at his feet. You sit up straight. In the 30 minutes that remain, you tell Colin all about the majors you've had so far and why you dropped them. You spent a semester as a kinesiology major because you liked the idea of the actual existence of something called a gait and posture lab, but you quit because of the phraseology, that euphemistic fascist language of the body, its lofty obfuscation of the simplest and humblest movements and functions. Then you became a geology major, until the professor showed earthquake footage in class and you replayed it every night, your shaky feet tight-roping the molten seam that rose up, livid as a welt as the ground split open. Then for a short while you studied English lit, but the similes made you give it up. All that gratuitous shape-shifting of the familiar, all those groundless comparisons. You like to think that you stumbled into social work not randomly, but as a culmination of the impulses that had been driving you all along. You wanted to keep people's bodies moving fluidly, then to protect them from geological disasters, then to understand them better by increasing your fluency in human passions via classic works of literature. And finally, you realize that it was a luxury to worry about any of those things, that the real work involved life's necessities, shelter, food, sanity, the management of cases. Colin said, what else is necessary for life? Oh, health, you say. Time is up. You start to drift toward the door. I forgot health. As you cross the threshold, Colin says, it's like an ultrasound or an EKG. You freeze mid-step. Then you know what he means. The huge black voids of his lenses turn slowly toward you. That's what it's like, he says. Static. Wavy. You stand there in the doorway. Oh, you say. The clock ticks. Monty sighs. He adds, and if the lights are on and off, I can tell. You find a book in the Keystone break room called Soul Recovery, and you keep it in your bag for a week before perusing its ungrammatical and boldface heavy content. Then you read it while taking calls, using the it sounds like you're feeling worksheet as a bookmark. I'm telling you, an insane woman says, they're going to evict me. They're down there plotting to evict me because I'm closing my refrigerator door too hard, and they can hear it, and what if it flies off its hinges? 
I can't open the damn thing to get my meds because if I open it, then I'd have to close it and they'll kick me out for closing it too hard. The back cover of Soul Recovery says, Are you interested in a tangible, action-oriented plan of recovery from trauma guaranteed to diminish 15 years of recovery work to a reasonable amount of your time? Of course you are. You tell the woman, It sounds like you're feeling worried. Don't you tell me how I'm feeling, she snaps. I know how I'm feeling and I'm sick of this. It sounds like you're feeling bullshit. Maybe you would relax if you took a nice hot bath, you say. You flip to a page in Soul Recovery that says, The glory is there, and when the source is tapped, healing waters spring forth. You have no idea what this means. The insane woman says, I'm sick of taking baths. Why is everyone I talk to here always telling me to take a fucking bath? Am I that dirty? We're here to listen, you tell her. That's what we do. It is odd to be so unaffected by her anger, to resist the impulse to confer lucidity and righteousness upon her simply because she is raging at you. You are learning to love the sweet, airless bloat of unconditional dismissal, the safeness of sloganeering. You may have found your major. Later, the wild-haired young man sidles over to your cubicle and says, You look no nonsense today. <clears throat> you smile up at him. When he swipes at the nape of your neck, you are beyond flinching. There is an absence of something, a happy void like the shiny circle of Colin's glasses, and it occurs to you that your soul has not recovered but is instead simply left, and you wish it well. It occurs to you that the soul is just another body, only sheerer and with fewer points of entrance or exit, and yours has tiptoed, giddily impish as a truant, away from the flesh puppet. You expected it to hurt more than this, or at least to be accompanied by a ripping sound. Tyler strolls by, underarms saturated, and says, You crazy kids. Officially, you know it is the alcohol that does it, the two-for-one happy hour at the tall man's chosen drinking establishment. You know it peels your body into layers like the mica schist of your long-lost geology lab. You know it turns you into a walking violation of natural law, simultaneously diluted and distilled. You know it's the alcohol, and that is the story you will stick to later, but you also know that you want him to touch you, or at least to touch some part of you, while leaving your glowing and furnace-bright center the flaming coal of your selfhood completely alone. And when he picks up your hand across the table of bald napkins and moisture rings, and drives your body to a place with the bed, and gets on top of you as you are lying in it, and when he touches your neck and tells you it's a pretty neck, all your layers flailing for integration in the sleeve of your body like weasels in a sack, and you are too present suddenly, afraid of what he wants from you and why. You wish for Colin. You wish for Monty. Right then and there you want the predictable and temperate decency of them, the finite and bloodless parameters of what they expect from you. You want them to come into the room and firmly, gently tell the young man that you have to go now, and you would follow them out the door with the same sense of limp gratitude, the same eleventh-hour reprieve that you felt when you were little and your mother would unexpectedly pick you up from ballet class early. Can you go slow? You tell the dark-haired man. Then you realize you don't know his last name. Okay, he says. He adjusts himself, and he says in his stubbed, congested voice, the voice of someone with a bad cold that is really turning him on, tell me how it feels. He could be kidding. You are unschooled in sexual banter. For a moment you freeze. How does it feel? Is it supposed to feel any different than it ever has? And what if it does feel different? Must you now define it? As if in answer, there is a coalescing inside you, a solemn alignment of particles, a closing of ranks. You glaze over with a canny lubricity. His weight is on you. You don't need to answer any questions. You do not need to run out of the room. You can move in the ways people are supposed to move. You can reach for what juts out, taut and unforgiving as a ripcord, between his body and yours. Colin has a habit of kneading the round tip of his walking stick like a fretful king with a scepter. As a therapeutic hour progresses, this tick supersedes every other identifying trait. Here's what I want you to think about, he says. Why do you think you shut off during this moment of intimacy? You watch his hands writhe across the knob of the stick. For the tenth time this morning you feel it, the queasy, sloughing sensation, the wave of erosion exposing a tender gully in your lower abdomen. You have felt yourself slowly diminishing all morning, since the tall man drove you here and dropped you off with a diffident hug, and you thought it was a good thing, 
a result of having touched another human being in a sensual manner for the first time since your long-lost days as an urban studies major. You felt sleeker, as though a primordial overhead had been cut, rendering you cleanly functional as an animal, and almost as innocent. Walking into Colin's office, you were struck by an urge to announce reactivated kinship with the rest of the world. And you told him, and he put his hand on his chin and rubbed, which is what he does when he's puzzling over why you have done the things you have done. I thought you'd be glad, you say. Colin said, is it for my sake that you did this? His voice is exaggeratedly incredulous. He rubs the stick. As you watch him, you are suddenly deflated by the fact that you can do shameful things with one person and disclose them to another, and neither one is more than a collage of idiosyncrasies. Restless hands, a smell of smoky cologne, a thicket of hair on the lower back. You have come to rely solely on traits like these in order to tell people apart. It gets far too complicated to classify them according to whatever nonsensical thing they did with or to you. I'm only here, you say, because the helpline is making me. I'm here as an observer of your technique, which incidentally is totally judgmental and would completely get me fired if I used it. Well, tell me this then, Callan says, shifting in his chair. If someone called your helpline and related to you the episode you just described to me, what would you tell them? You fold your arms, to take a bath, you say, or a walk. And that's it? Then I would tell them what it sounds like they're feeling. And, Callan says with infernal cleverness, hunching forward with his lenses slipping down his nose, what would that feeling be? Monty snorts on the rug, snatching her, stretching her hind legs. For a moment, you can't feel your face. Take off your glasses, you tell Colin. Something greased and ruthless stirs in the hollow of your belly. He stiffens. No, he says. He opens his mouth and closes it. You hear the moist squish of his lips separating. Come on, you say. I want to see your eyes. There's a silence. Then he says, I'm sorry, but I think I need to ask you to leave. The words running together a bit, nervous, jerking his head up and around as if trying to elude the lens of an invisible camera, a useless holdover from a time when he could see. And this is how you know that he has not been blind all his life. You stand up. This doesn't really matter because you know how to pave over such things. You know how to pull yourself together and walk out of a room. Walking out of rooms is one of your favorite activities. Your hand hovers over Colin's body, and you wonder if his heightened senses pick up the intention of touch. You suddenly want to touch everyone on earth, not tenderly, not sensually, but in the role of prankish, mythological imp, the kind that disappears after tripping up legs, spearing hearts with arrows, just a jar of his stolid hip bone and free-floating cockix in the world. You feel you have a license to do that now. But at the last second, you stoop down and pet Monty instead, despite the sign she wears explicitly forbidding petting. The ruff around her neck is coarse and thick, separating into blonde spears that are dark at the roots. Her black eyes roll toward you in surprise. She is, you realize, as Colin stares straight ahead with his black lenses glimmering, not the one you will miss. The hearts are gone, and there are four-leaf clovers dancing in a boozy, herky-jerky line across the windows of Keystone. After that, there will be eggs and rabbits, the agrarian emblems of Easter, then the cartoon daisies of May, the blank-windowed stretch of June ending in a barrage of patriotic iconography. It is not clear who cuts out and tapes these things. In the next cubicle is the nodding, unkempt head of the tall man, who does not stop by anymore to diagnose your mental state, who now gives you tiny, perfunctory smiles in the Keystone break room and who had a tedious conversation with you in which he admitted the night in bed was a mistake and that he respects you too much to repeat it. You hear him drone, because your caseworker is busy, because your caseworker is not available, and if she were, she'd tell you the same thing I'm telling you right now, to take a nice, soothing bath. Colin once said, that's a very healthy and sane part of you, the part that gets angry when it doesn't get what it wants. Your switchboard blinks and shrills. You pick up. Get me my caseworker, a man snarls. I need a word with that bitch. What is wrong, you say? What's wrong is my meds. This shit's got me constipated, man. I haven't gone number two in three fucking days, and don't you tell me to take no bath, either. You feel the presence of Tyler behind you, the sweet, drenched smell of his floral, spicy sweat. Do you have any laxatives in the house, you say, or dried apricots, or any coffee? 
Yeah, I got coffee, but that ain't gonna do shit. There's a fucking boulder in my gut, I'm telling you. You explain that his caseworker can do nothing to alleviate his intestinal distress, and that you will have to wait until the next business day to get the free clinic psychiatrist to adjust his medication. I can't wait, the man says. His voice seethes and breaks. You can feel him beginning to lose control, to abandon himself to the part of his mind that lives in a suspended and elusive state of emergency. He is giving himself over. I need to talk to that bitch. I need her to fix this. She can't, you say flatly. You hear Tyler click his tongue. Transfer me, the man pats, or I'm going to fucking kill myself. The other line lights up and buzzes, and you put him on hold and pick up. Keystone Mental Health Helpline. It's the lady who is afraid to close her refrigerator. Don't open it, you tell her. Don't go near it. Just hold on. Out of the corner of your eye, Tyler waves his arms, and the familiar ruthlessness rears up in your abdomen, that greased track that makes leave-taking irresistible and inevitable. You switch back over. Hi, you say to the constipated man. Kill myself, he screams. Look, you say, if you feel like you're going to kill yourself, then hang up and call 911 right now. Tyler is staring at you. The constipated man is screaming that you are a murderous whore, and you disconnect and say to the refrigerator lady, I'm going to tell you something about home appliances and refrigerators in particular, and I want you to listen carefully. They're extremely strong. They're designed to weather abuse. They will not break if you open and slam them 500 times in a row. It would be physically impossible for a human being to pull a refrigerator door off its hinges. The woman says, really? I wasn't aware of that. You assure her it is the case. She pauses and says, that's fascinating. Tyler is now trying to remove the phone from your hand. He is shoving it sounds like you're feeling under your nose. The other interns emerge from their cubicles to witness the complete repudiation of every single helpline principal. Next, you call 911. Hello, you say to the operator, who has cultivated a plummy and pathologically competent tone identical to your own. You sound like two pod people conversing. You give her the constipated man's address and phone and inform her that he has threatened suicide and is gravely constipated. She replies, oh, he just called us. We sent someone over there. She adds, he does this like every other day. When you stand up, Tyler is in your face. You hear nothing. You just pick up your backpack and walk out the door into the damp, leafless day. For a while, you walk backwards, watching the shamrocks on the windows get smaller and smaller. You board the bus to campus with the intention of picking up a course catalog and choosing a different major. As you get off the bus, you imagine a film over your body like the dusty bloom on a grape. You are dry and smooth and neutrally repellent of all things. Then you see Colin and Monty coming down the concrete steps of the counseling center. You can tell what's going to happen three seconds before it does. Colin's face below the black discs is tight with concentration. He is clutching a stack of files with one hand and Monty's harness with the other. And he loses his footing. His ankles briefly intertwine mid-step before separating fiercely, frantically, as though one had burned the other. Then he falls. You stand there. You stand and watch as Colin mutters, Oh dear, oh dear unable to voice a profanity, even in distress, patting the ground with his palms, groping for his glasses which have fallen off his face, and Monty hovers over him, tail wagging, head darting. Colin heaves himself to his feet. His glasses are on the ground, stems splayed obscenely about six inches from your shoe. You take a step back as he pats himself with tender, distracted solicitude, checking for damage, assessing the viability of his main remaining senses. He lifts his head and you see, for the first time, his naked eyes, clouded with the pearlescent, eerie radiance of cataract, unfocused, drifting, but unmistakably, almost painfully, soft. You can discern no pigment. There is nothing but a colorless luster of kindness. Now, Monty, you hear him say. Now, Monty, where are they? Glasses, girl. And Monty lumbers toward you, takes the spectacles delicately in her jaws, and turns around to offer them to Colin. She is so close you could reach out and pet her. Then they are walking away. You keep standing at the site of the fall as though the area needs to be monitored in case other blind people come along, but you would be of no help anyway because the blind, like shamans with their animal guides and their knobby sticks, their insect-like feelers, don't need your help. Just as you used to when you were a little kid, you put your palms over your eyes and wait to feel the difference for the new way of seeing, the hidden way to sink in. But all you're doing is filling in the darkness with what you already know is there. The clock tower, the concrete buildings, the grass and the trees, the person-shaped moving figures. And when you take your palms away, 
The visual world surges toward you as if you have been missed, as if it has so many new things to show you, least among them the figures of a dog and a man, a closed circuit of brisk synchronicity, fur and flesh, moving out of your line of sight forever. Suzanne Rebecca is a former Wallace Stegner Fellow at Stanford and is currently a lecturer in the English department. Rock a party, the party, backyard, the yard, tear up, yard, backyard, the yard, rock a party, the party, backyard, the yard. Today's program was produced by Jonah Willinghens and myself. It was engineered by Bonnie Swift. Thanks to Ben Savage, David Heyman, Nate Solon, and Suzanne Rebecca for their stories. And special thanks to Bob Smith for his help in the recording studio. Original music was performed by Julian Wass and DJ Danny Glover, whose music can be found on Stanford iTunes. And music was also performed by Kissing Johnny. For their generous financial support, we'd like to thank the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, Stanford Continuing Studies, the Program in Oral Communication, and the Hume Writing Center. KZSU would like to thank the law offices of Fenwick and West for their generous underwriting support. The Stanford Storytelling Project will be taking a break for the holidays, but we'll be back in January. Until then, you can check out this episode and all our past episodes on our website, storytelling.stanford.edu, and on Stanford iTunes. For the Stanford Storytelling Project, I'm Micah Craddy. If wisdom grows in time, then time will show the rhyme respect. Greatness cultivates itself in retrospect. If wisdom grows in time, then time will show the rhyme respect. Greatness cultivates itself in retrospect. So go inspect the poems, check the script of every nation. Over tricks of alliteration, mistakes, and